The Ram Dama's Kingdom by Robert P. Fitton. Episode 10, Run for Your Lives. Briefings at the Kennedy Spaceport normally convened every Friday afternoon. All administrative offices would summarize their weekly activities and give status reports. Sometimes it just seemed like an exercise in monotony. But the launch of the short-range transport was rapidly approaching. Technical as well as department leaders were meeting every day, sometimes twice a day. The importance of the launch was paramount. Agency prestige would be on the line at a time when most people in the country, from the poorest to the wealthiest, were distrusting anything to do with space exploration. During the long years after the turn of the century, the space agency became isolated from the general public. Interest in launches, deep space probes, and the industrialization of space began to wane. More than likely, this apathy stemmed from the classification of almost every space matter. Only select members of the House and Senate, along with the agency bureaucrats, had anything to do with the knowledge of what was happening in space. There were great advances in space travel. The solar system was being explored in great detail, and private industry had scratched the surface of industrialization. But no one was ever told, and just as well. There had been setbacks and tragedies. The press had been digging for answers, and all they had was suspicions about blunders. All space matters, however, were locked tight and the agency computers were available only to those with the proper authority and clearance. Many of those high-level people had gathered in yet another meeting. It was late afternoon at the spaceport. Sunlight and shadows covered the runways outside the administration building conference room. Walter Stoddard, the pompous little director of the agency, stood in front of the windows as he spoke to agency personnel. Of what we want to accomplish, let's get to the heart of it, he said, taking a cigarette out of a brass case. We're selling the public, pure and simple, he told them as he lit the cigarette. In the back of the room, General Kellogg yawned. For the past few minutes, he had been constantly tapping his fingers on the desk. Then he would just look at his watch. There were other places he could be. I just want to emphasize the positive, said started. All questions about failure can only be said to be irrelevant. I don't have to tell anyone here that moving into space is an unprecedented task. The trouble we face is the damn press. The yellow press. They want everything to be 100% correct. I don't know about anyone else, but I'm only human. Apparently the press doesn't appreciate that. Life isn't perfect and neither is the monumental task of settling space. Pete Barrett will go into this later. He's the PR man. I just want everybody to remember the word positive. When Stoddard had finished, a tall slender man with a crimson beard rose to his feet. He held a number of printouts and reports in his hand. I can see, said Stoddard, Frank Winder is telling me in his own nonchalant manner he's ready for the system's report. It's all yours, Frank. Thank you, Walter. As flight director, I can't overstate how much work we have left. We are positively behind, he said, in an obvious reference to Stoddard's message. Relations between the two men had never been good. We still have the backup tanks coming up from St. Louis, and the secondary fuel consumption computer is full of bugs. We're all taking this launch much too lightly. Frank, you worry too much, said Stoddard from the aisle. I suppose that's an asset, but the way you talk, you'd think we were launching this afternoon. I was merely stating our problems, Walter, 
said Winder, holding back his anger. Another problem, Walter, is Mesmer. He has the flu. Mesmer is still the pilot. The flu won't hang on for weeks. Any other major problems, Frank? Yes, answered Winder, nervously rubbing a pencil across his brow. I thought so. Go ahead, Frank. That bar in the rear section of the short-range transport, the engineers claim they have two sets of blueprints. They won't work until... Why don't they just call me? They have been trying your office all day. Oh, well, far be it from me that booze was prevented on the flight, Sid started. Everyone but Winder was laughing. Send them over to my office tomorrow morning. Thank you, Frank. The director seemed to be telling him to solve his own problems. Now, Pete, what's this about the seating adjustments? The tubby Barrett, also nursing, a, also nursing a cigarette, stood on his feet. Walter, the uh, lottery we established had worked very well despite the apathetic trends in the country. 200 people have been selected from that system. Now, the actual insurance and agreement policies are nearly complete, but the VIP list is still up in the air. I persuaded Senator Rothstein, of course, to have the leader of the new welfareism as a definite plus in our favor. There's also a number of congressmen, including the Budget Committee Chairman Folsom. I have the major labor union leaders of the country. There is a possibility of getting governors from three states, and quite reluctantly I've invited representatives from the major networks. Can we wrap this up, Pete? Yeah, started. Yes, sir, it's almost done. We plan to have extra seats right up to flight time. I've been giving the press daily reports, assuring them we're bending over backwards to please them. I must emphasize that. I must emphasize what Walter said about being positive, he said, looking over toward Winder. We must confirm our positions, but we must also convince them of our own good intentions. I don't want any slip-ups. press is out to get us. And I, for one, am putting my reputation on the line. We have to get more money for the space program. If we don't build any prestige, we're dead. We need to have all these people in the SRT happy when they come back to Earth. We want them to support space enthusiastically. In turn, that will influence people down here on Earth. Adding to this is our full television coverage of the event, which will add to the interest not just the people who have a misconception about space. Kellogg closed his eyes. Not that he didn't agree with Barrett. It was do or die for the United States and the free world in space. Other nations were making headway and had the potential to surpass the agency. And if the agency faltered in the slightest way, there would be no tomorrow. General Kellogg. General Kellogg, call on line seven. Kellogg opened his eyes and looked up at the speaker. Admiring reporter, no doubt, said started, and everyone laughed. The day a reporter admires me, replied Kellogg as he rose, is the day I'm going to retire. There were chuckles all around the room, and the general stepped through the doorway. The doors closed behind him, and he reached for an audiophone on the wall. Kellogg here. Johnson, the code 7 line has sounded, Matt. That's it, I'll be right there, he said, hanging up the phone. He ran down the corridor and into the elevator. Minutes later, the general rushed up to his office. A young private was guarding the door. Private, is Lieutenant Johnson inside? Yes, sir, he wanted me to guard the door, answered the private. Well done, son. Hold your post. 
He pushed the code box next to the door. As the door slid open, he could see Johnson next to the Code 7 screen. One of the SIA agents was standing near the Worldwide Temple. This is Agent Winston, General, Johnson told him as he pointed to the screen. What the hell is going on here? General, said the well-dressed Winston. There's been some kind of attack on the Worldwide Temple here in Phoenix. An attack? Are you serious? Explosions and gas canisters. For what purpose? I mean, why are you telling me this? I have no connection to the Worldwide Church. General, General, he said with great consternation. Look, Winston, I'm a busy man. You just pulled me out of a high-level meeting. General, that private investigator, McGee, his scan matches the images of a man seen in the temple right before the explosions. That's absurd. Are you telling me one man tried to blow up the worldwide temple? No, he had accomplices, said Winston as Baker's image came over the monitor. That's the gymnasium owner, McGee's friend. Oh, God almighty. Then McGee's face was on a split screen, an agency photo on one side and the scan of McGee in a robe by its other side. Probability numbers from the computers flashed on the screen. Accuracy for both men was 98%. You see, General? Yes, I see. Good God, man. This is incredible. The audacity of McGee. He cried, pinching his nose to contain his anger. Then he looked up slowly. Andy Sinclair's picture was on the screen. Kellogg's eyes opened wide. That's the woman, Sinclair. What woman, General? I know that woman. What woman, General? Asked Winston. We know something. What is it, sir? It's classified, mister. Your job is to brief me. I suggest that you do just that. Yes, sir. Local authorities have advised that there was nothing taken. They escaped in one of the church trucks. That truck was found beneath an underpass, wedged in. It was empty, General. You keep me advised, Winston, and thank you for the briefing, he said, deactivating the screen. Then he turned to Johnson. His face was bright red. Damn that McGee, that son of a bitch. And what did Hutchinson tell that man? Interrogation of the colonels revealed nothing of the sort. He said he was unconscious most of the time he was with McGee. Well, get somebody else over there. Grill the bastard. I want to know what he told McGee. And I just hope he didn't get to those computers. Good God, this is crazy. Can't get a hold of that program, Delbo 65. General, you know that's coded. No. Damn that McGee. He'll figure it out. I know he will. I want the whole western region on full alert. Find McGee. What about the woman on the screen? Johnson wanted to know. Forget it. Just include her and Baker in the search, said Kellogg. The pressure was mounting. Shall I use all means necessary, General? To get them? Yes. I want them all brought back here for debriefing. Right here, in this office, Johnson. We have to find out what he knows and who he's told. This man is a thorn in my side. I want to know where he is. Where is Harry McGee? The rustic lodge was set deep within the Wyoming mountains. Snow had fallen earlier in the day, covering the roof of the large log structure. In one of the upper rooms, Harry McGee pulled back the lace curtains. He looked across the mountain valley, its blanketed slopes and wide icy lakes spanned under the low gray clouds. Turning from the window, he stood and walked to the outer room. The fire blazed, tainting the room with a heavy, smoky smell. Baker watched television and looked over to McGee as he crossed the room. You're not going in there again. 
McGee headed for the side bedroom. I have to, he said as he put his hand on the doorknob. Don't disturb him again. He's going as fast as he can. Inside, seated behind a roll-top desk, was an older man with thick glasses. He studied the printouts under a high-intensity lamp. As McGee entered the room, the man looked up and summarily shook his head. I don't understand this. The code can't be that complicated. Mr. McGee, said the man, pushing back the chair. I have never seen a program encoded in this manner. It makes no sense. Can't stay here forever, blamed McGee, his face tense. Then he closed his eyes. Fatigue and frustration were weighing heavily on his mind. The man pushed the chair further back and then stood. He walked over and put his hand on McGee's shoulder. McGee, get some rest. We both know that when you called me last month, it wouldn't be easy. Out of your hands right now, so please, get some rest. I know he's right, said Baker, now standing in the doorway. I'll second that, said Annie behind him. Yep, you're both right. It's just a matter of time. I'm sorry, Mr. Rowalski. I Please continue, he said as he walked into the other room. More coffee, Ratoski. Please, he answered as he sat back in front of the desk. McGee, said Annie. McGee, let's go outside, said Annie. It's below zero out there, sunshine, he said as he sat down on the sofa. She took their suede and wool coats off the rack. Come on, McGee, she said, draping his orange stocking hat over his head. Cold weather might cool you down. All right, all right, he said as he stood and put on the coat. Well, where are you going? asked Bake as he stood with the coffee. Just outside, Bake, he said, looking at Annie. This was your idea. Let's go. She opened the door, the cold hitting them like a prize fighter's best punch. McGee turned to go back inside, but Annie pulled him out on the long porchway. He put on his gloves and, and leaned on the snow-covered wood railing. Maybe you should ask your boss, Senator Rothstein, why I'm so testy. Or maybe I should just call him myself. Why would you want to do that? She asked. You know, he said as he turned, I was attracted to you the minute I saw you on that screen. She smiled, looking into his eyes. Kind of a mutual attraction, I guess, she said, holding his hand. That's very nice, Andy. Then you might even say you care about me. What happens to me if I get hurt or something like that? Yeah, I care. Why the hell haven't you been leveling with me? She turned away. What would make you say that? I didn't even call Senator Rothstein's office. Maybe you do work for him, maybe you don't. Are you leveling with me? I want to know about the red metal. The red metal? Just tell me about the red metal. I'm an aspiring actress, but times were tough for me. I was working in the hotel where they took Hutchinson. It was just a waitress job. It didn't pay very much, just enough to get by. They were in back and... Who? Where? asked McGee. The SIA meant they were trying to take food to the back. Maybe they had permission. They must have. It was late at night. But I heard them talking about the red metal. About how much it was worth. How Hutchinson's ship was hijacked. Let's get out of here. Over to the woods. I don't want anyone listening. He took her hand and they went down the wooden stairs. They walked across the snowy parking lot and across the snow-trodden trail through the woods. I don't think anyone would be listening out here, McGee, she said as they moved onto the trail. Nevertheless, I don't trust anyone. You trusted me. Well, you're different. Am I? Never mind that. You heard all this. Why did you even care? Why do you care? 
she asked as they un walked under the snow-covered branches. Because I have a case here. She shook her head. You want the red medal, just like I do. You want it badly. You'd do anything for it, McGee. I had the best of everything in my life. And why would you want more? My father's business went under two years ago. The debts were staggering. All their friends just disappeared when the money went. So did mine. Maybe I wanted to recapture all that money. The houses in Florida, on the Cape, the servants, it's all gone. I don't know what your reasons are, McGee, but we're both totally compulsive about living a life free of poverty. Oh, you probably won't admit it outright, but it's true. No, no, you're very right, Andy, you're very right. I never had this feeling, the feeling of being chased. Oh, that feeling, <laughs> said McGee as he stopped. He turned to her and locked into her light blue eyes. They sparkled in the cold. I was hoping you'd have other feelings. I do, she said softly. He had strong feelings for her, feelings he had known right away when he talked to her on the phone. And by her intensity, he knew she felt that too. The snow melted on their faces and time seemed to stand still as they approached the shore of the ice-covered lake. There were cabins all around and smoke filled the air. He took her by the hand again, leading her through the snow, past the many lighted cabins. Where are we going? You'll see, he shouted as they trounced through the snow. He brought her right up to the porch of a darkened cabin. In a few seconds he had jimmied open the lock and they stepped into the dark. There were no electric lights in this cabin, and McGee lit a match and looked around. On the wall was an old green glass oil lamp. She closed the door as the dim yellow flame illuminated the one-room cabin. You don't mind stepping back in time, do you, Annie? He asked, holding the lamp higher in the air. Sounds good to me, she said with a smile. She watched McGee as he hurried forward and stuffed the wood into a large stone fireplace. He put some old papers underneath. It took a few tries, but in a couple of minutes, the fire was blazing. A rip-roaring fire, he said, rubbing his hands. He took off her stocking hat slowly, and then her coat. The room was getting very warm now as he wiped his brow and then took off his own coat. The fire was gaining power now, with each ember seemed to flow brighter than ever before, and the smoke billowed up the chimney shaft into the snowy, cavernous sky inside that tiny firelit cabin along the lake's edge. The night was theirs. Hernandez! yelled General Kellogg from his Code 7 screen. The spaceport was dark and drizzly behind him. Hector, Hector, for God's sakes answer me! I'm right here, General, said Hernandez as he walked into camera range. Whoa, that's reassuring. I've been told by Winston that printing paper was expended in the computer room. Yes, General, I just received the same report. You know what that means, Hector. It's a race. A race between us and McGee. We have to stop him before he decodes the printout. We understand that, General. I don't care what you understand, Hector. What the hell are you doing about it? Scans are in the works, General. We have men here tapping into every hotel computer west of the Mississippi. And the APB is still out on McGee's turbo. And I hope all my orders are clear. I don't want any hotshot blowing this whole thing wide open. Yes, sir, McGee, the Sinclair woman, and Baker, they're to be brought to you personally at the spaceport. That is very clear, General. Good. For once, I'm going to try and get some sleep. Johnson will be on duty at the Code 7 desk. I want to wake up to good news, Hector. That's all I have to say. Good night. 
Dawn broke over Wyoming. The tops of the peaks were smudged in fresh sunlight. Inside the cabin, the fire had long since dimmed. The embers, however, were glowing brightly. McGee and Annie were awake, snuggled under the blankets in the cold air. You followed them out of Boston? asked McGee. I know, I know, I can hardly believe I had the guts to do it. When Hatchinson got out, I thought I had lost everything. I just kept my distance from the SIA men, till the other agents checked out your apartment. What'd you do, follow me to Jan's? Yes, how did you know? she asked. You must have seen the scans, the two words. She nodded her head. I was down at the desk. The guy had the monitor on at the desk. I, I saw you place the call to the senator. And that's when you decided to call me back, McGee wanted to know. Yes, I'm sorry, McGee. There were footsteps outside the cabin porch, and then a hefty knock on the door. McGee leaped up quickly, stumbling to put on his pants. He went over to the windows and pulled back the heavy curtain. Baker, he said as he zipped up his fly and then opened the outside door. Oh, room service, how gracious. Thanks for telling us where you went, man, said Baker as he looked over at Annie under the covers. Never mind that. What about Rokowski? He did it. Baker smiled. He pulled the computer sheets from behind his back. How's this? All right, Baker, all right. We're five separate codes, McGee. Oh, we're smoking now, said McGee as Baker handed the computer sheets to him. He didn't read the whole thing, did he? McGee, he had to read it in order to break the code. Okay, I understand. Just get him up to the lodge restaurant. Book him on one of those tourist helicopter services. Well, which one? There's five different companies. I don't care, Bake, said McGee, shivering. Just get up there and fill his belly. We'll be up there shortly. Okay, I'll see you up there, smiled Baker as he looked over to Annie. Morning, Annie. Morning, Bake. Baker smiled at McGee as he closed the door and McGee turned around to Annie. Looks like things are turning around, sunshine. He said, holding up the printouts. Do you really think he has the information on the red metal listed on that sheet? Yes, I think we're on the home stretch. Hours passed. The massive stone fireplace in the lodge's restaurant hissed and sputtered as McGee, sitting in one of the booths, hovered over the computer printouts. He drank cup after cup of coffee, writing furiously as he translated Rokowski's codes. Annie and Baker watched from across the room wondering just what was taking so long. I'm going over there, she told Baker. She crossed the wide floorboards, finally standing right over McGee. His notebook was filled with scribbles. Hello, sunshine, he said as he looked up at her. Boring stuff so far. Money transaction with local members around the country. Nothing about, she said as she sat down, then she whispered, nothing about the red metal? Life can be futile, Annie. He said, ripping off some of the pages. These donations are incriminating in themselves. Donations in California alone exceeded 300000 a month. That's almost a million dollars in 90 days, tax-free. What a damn racket. Think I'll form my own church. Might be safer than going after that red metal, she smiled, holding his wrist. She stared out the window as McGee continued. McGee had filled up two pages of notebook paper, and then he stopped. Just staring at what had been written, Annie took the notebook and then read it out loud. Bevel 2. What is Bevel 2? A transaction for $32,000 for Bevel 2. That's incredible. McGee, what does it mean? Bevel 2 is the code for the space agency. 
What is the Ram Dhamad doing giving that amount of money to the space program? Now I see it, said Annie. Makes perfect sense. I mean, with those words, he's the one involved with the hijacking. Gee looked to his right. Baker ran across the room with their coats. Okay, Harry, my boy, we have company outside, he said, tossing McGee his coat. What? yelled McGee, grabbing the printout of the notebook. He rushed over to the windows. A late model turbo had just driven up to the front offices. Three men were heading to the registration desk. Oh, great, said McGee as he pointed to the snow-covered bushes across the street. There were two more turbos, partially hidden, looking like they were ready to move at a moment's notice. S.I.A., said Baker and McGee in unison as they looked into each other's eyes. Let's get the hell out of here, ordered McGee. He put on his coat, stuffing the notebook and the sheets under his arm. Then he followed them out the rear exit. Very quickly, they traced the path around the towering lodge. McGee had placed his own turbo in back of the long maintenance hut, just for such an occasion. And just as well, more men were appearing on the back porch. How did they find us? asked the frightened Annie. Who knows, whispered McGee, but if we don't get out of here right now, we're screwed. Everything I gave them was phony, even the turbo license plate number. Well, that's all irrelevant now, man, said Baker as they moved behind a large tree. They were about 50 feet away from a maintenance hut. The SIA men were coming around the front and rendezvousing with the others in back. McGee, you could get hurt. I have no choice. Everybody get down, he said, diving to his stomach. They'll find the car in a matter of minutes if I don't get it. Just stay down and just be ready to jump in. Please be careful, McGee. McGee moved on his belly through the snow. He could feel the cold against his bare skin as he slinked along. The SIA men, so close to the back porch, were standing and trying to decide on their next course of action. Then one of the men spotted McGee in the snow. They all turned as the man drew his gun. You! Freeze! SIA! Freeze! Fired a warning shot. McGee rolled over in the back of the building, and Baker had to physically hold Annie back from running toward the shed. No one knew whether McGee had been hit or not. Voice command, yelled McGee. Auto release. Begin charging. The doors to the turbo flung upward as the engine hummed up instantly. McGee leaped inside, holding a load of snow in with him as he grabbed the wheel. Manual control. Right door open, he shouted. McGee pushed on the accelerator. The SIA men were yelling through a loudspeaker, unaware of the turbo, but the tires spun through the snow. The turbo now came into view and he fishtailed around the shed. He moved right toward the SIA men and they dove into the snow, showered with an avalanche of snow from the spinning tires. McGee swung the car over by the trees, slowing just long enough for Annie and Baker to leap inside. The outer doors, due to the computer's analysis, closed promptly. McGee pushed the accelerator to the floor as more shots rang out. The turbo moved like a tank through the snow, across the open fields and toward the woods. It crashed through the rail fence and headed down the tiny pathway. Computer, monitor communications on the headset. Ordered McGee and Baker put on the headphones. They have orders to disable the turbo, said Baker as he listened. McGee put an enlarged rear screen on the viewer. God, look at that. Ten SIA vehicles were now moving out of the parking lot and onto the field. We are in deep trouble, shouted McGee as he fought to keep the turbo on the pathway. Started twenty more men out of Sheridan, shouted Baker, and choppers. I didn't expect this at all, McGee replied. The cabins in the lake were coming into view. 
You, you're not going to go out on that lake. Oh, oh no, laughed McGee nervously. Just watch me. The turbo moved up and over the shore incline. It was in mid-air for several seconds, bouncing onto the ice, skidding around in a circle. McGee regained control and shot across the lake. All the cars, one by one, followed the same path as the turbo. By now, McGee had about a half a mile lead. Like all the men in the SIA cars, he was studying a satellite scan of the area. He could see the cars in pursuit. Well, it won't be long before they get choppers out here, said Baker, now listening with one of the headphone speakers cocked to his ear. Eleven minutes to present speed, said the computer, plotting their course on the bottom of the screen. I think we're rapidly approaching the end, buddy, said Baker, shaking his head. I have an idea, said McGee. Yeah? These guys in the SIA cars, they must be looking at the same satellite scan. Sure, so what? That's why we're going to jump out, said McGee. Oh, real good plan, McGee, laughed Baker nervously. Can't make it on foot, said Annie. She's right, McGee. With those choppers coming, you're crazy. We'll be out long before they get up here, said McGee calmly. And go where? Into the wilderness? grilled Baker. No, we're going back to the lodge. One of those helicopter services. And all the time, they'll be following me in the turbo. Annie smiled, looking at Baker briefly, and then over to McGee. I suppose it's just going to drive itself. Don't laugh, sweetheart, said Baker, closing his eyes. It can do it. It can do it. What? She exploded. That's impossible. I'll have this turbo bring them on the wildest goose chase they've ever seen, chuckled McGee. Computer, enhanced map of the area. The screen filled with a green and blue gridded map. A dozen coves, said Baker as he studied the screen. Look over there, Bake. The bridge we saw coming in, only a half a mile from the lodge. And the chopper pads. SIA helicopters less than five minutes away, McGee. Computer, bring us to section D5. We'll go under the bridge, hiding from the satellites. When we leave the car, you will lead them as far away from them as possible. We'll be heading for the chopper pad. And if they stop you, you will erase all memory banks and cut the power. Is that clear? Instructions clear, McGee. The computer can do all that? Asked Annie. Sure can. Answered McGee as he looked down at the viewer, less than a half a mile away. Inside of the cove, an old high-span concrete bridge was coming into view. There it is, said Baker as he looked up. How fast will we be going, computer? Fifteen miles an hour, the turbo moved faster, gaining an even greater lead on these slower SIA cars. From one of the approaching helicopters, Hernandez watched the turbo on the satellite picture, the same picture that Kellogg was watching on his Code 7 screen. You've got him now, Hector, said the general, leaning toward the monitor. That cove leads to a bottleneck. You've got them now. Roger, General. We'll cover the same scene in two minutes car moved under the bridge and out of sight. It slowed by the snowy embankment. The doors opened and they leaped out, rolling across the snow. The computer closed the doors and spun around in a large semicircle. They scampered up the bank and the turbo moved onto the lake and was on the satellite again. Are they mad? shouted Kellogg as he looked over at Johnson. They must have surmised there was no exit to that cove, said the lieutenant. The turbo rocketed across the lake. It moved right by the helpless SIA cars and toward the far side. Damn, that car is fast, shouted Kellogg as all the SIA cars turned on the ice, some of them losing control. Hector, I want him. I want McGee. Yes, sir. 
He looked out the helicopter window and down over the lake. He could see the turbo in the distance, leading the parade of cars across the lake. We're coming up on them now, General. McGee, Annie, and Baker stood on the top of the embankment. They could see the circling helicopters over the wild chase. Oh, you told me, said Baker. That turbo costs a lot of money without the computer, and how many thousand with the computer? McGee nodded and held the printout pages under his arm. He seemed distraught about losing the car. But it wasn't the money. The turbo and its computer were like an extension of his own mind, and now it was headed for disaster. Let's not harp on it. We have places to go, he said, taking Annie's hand, and they hurried into the woods. The turbo now was completely outwitting the SIA, weaving in and out of the coves, the woods, and around the hills. Even the helicopters moved erratically through the air, trying to keep up with it. But time was running out. Cars came up from all directions. The computer moved the turbo off the lake and up the slope of the mountain. The cars and the helicopters followed. To Kellogg's shock, however, the turbo moved right into a railroad tunnel. We've got them now, General, said Hernandez in the helicopter. Travis, bring your chopper to the other side of the tunnel. Hector, screamed Kellogg as he looked down at the satellite scan. There's a train entering that tunnel. They all saw the train disappear into the mountain tunnel. Frantically, they attempted to establish communication with it, but it was too late. Are they suicidal? Stop that train, yelled Kellogg. Turbo, moving over at 200 miles an hour, was now on a collision course with the oncoming train. The computer sensed the end and it jammed all the train's sensors. At the last possible moment, it erased the computer programs and storage tapes. The train easily crushed the shell of the turbo and its sophisticated computer into a meaningless scrap heap of junk. Immediately, it screeched to a stop. There was nothing left. More than an hour had elapsed before SIA personnel could get inside to make any assessments. They had bright lights all around. We didn't even detect it, said the train's controller to Hernandez. It's like our track scans were deactivated. Deactivated? scoffed Hernandez. He knew Kellogg would not be happy with that. It was only a car. I couldn't jam your screens. Hector, called one of his men as he ran from the wreckage. Hector! Yes, Travis, what is it? We've performed every possible test in that entire tunnel. So what? asked the frustrated Hernandez. Sir, there are no bodies. The car was empty. What are you telling me? They got away? We're finding computer parts. The car must have been a computer-controlled car. No, he shouted, clenching his fists. This will ruin me. Kellogg will ruin me for this. Where is he? The general, sir? No. Harry McGee. Where is Harry McGee? High above the Wyoming mountains, 50 miles south of the railroad tunnel, Harry McGee sat next to his friends. They were on a high-speed helicopter, having successfully booked on a flight back near the lodge. He had the printouts in his lap, reading almost compulsively. He nodded and then looked up at both of them. What is it, McGee? asked Baker. Maybe the jackpot, he smiled. Jackpot, he says, with SIA on our ass? There's no jackpot. I don't even believe any of this has happened. You'll stop complaining, Bake, when you hear this, McGee told him. The red metal. Listen. This is right out of Delbo 65, the program. All of this should be done in conjunction with Bevel 2, which is the space program. All the questions relating to RM will be directed to Potero Grande. 
clearance will be given to the Ramdamar Patero Grande. R.M. said Annie. Red metal. I think so. The red metal has been taken by the worldwide church, maybe in conjunction with the SIA or the space agency. It's more likely at Potero Grande. <laughs> Where the hell is Potero Grande? I don't know, Bake, but you can bet we're gonna find out. Join us again next week for another adventurous episode of the Ramdamas Kingdom, Who is He Who Commands the Masses? Produced by Fitton Theater of the Words.